0: Hey, Vince
1: McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break.
0: Oh, brother. You got to fight for your right to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Beastie Boys for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes... Perhaps indeed. We'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. My name is John McAdam, and I want to share a fun fact about Stick to Wrestling. Fewer than 70 episodes have been taken down due to me using racial slurs. I'm proud of myself <laughs> over that. <laughs> like, By the way, my guest, another beastie boy from Brooklyn laughing in the background. We'll, we'll speak with him in a moment. But I want to invite everyone to follow us on Facebook. We have a page where we talk about wrestling and all kinds of other stuff. Just ask to join and you're in. Follow me on Twitter. Put in the search John McAdam and uh, follow the guy with the stick to wrestling avatar as his avatar. One last thing, two guys. Guys, Valentine's Day coming up. Don't do it. Don't all of a sudden find religion. Oh, I'm not going to let Hallmark trick me into buying my wife or my girlfriend a present. Don't be an ass, buy her a present. Get her one of those Valentine's Day heart-shaped pizzas from Papa John's. Those are good. Don't do that. She'll kick you out and you can't move in with me. Anyway, my guest, first time he's been on Stick to Wrestling, uh, he and I have really hit it off on Twitter lately. Really good guy. I have the feeling I'm going to be screaming at myself because the show, I, I've got more than an hour to talk about with this gentleman. Brooklyn's own Brian Solomon. Brian, thank you for making the time.
1: My pleasure, John. That, thank you for the introduction. That was, this is really, really um, an honor to be here. Cause I mean, this is one of the podcasts that I listen to every episode of. So I've, I'm a fan definitely. And, and I've known of you uh, <laughs> as we'll talk about, but I've known of you for a very long time. Well, and so I'm, I'm pretty psyched.
0: Now, a big thing that has happened. Uh, and I've, again, I've got so much to talk about to Brian about. Brian, you and I are now kindred spirits because we both have podcasts on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Tell us a little bit about yours.
1: Well, I first want to say that I really hope that you're not going to hold any kind of gimmick infringement grudge on me because we we have sort of somewhat similar sounding names of our podcasts. Uh, Yours is Stick to Wrestling. Mine is Shut Up and Wrestle. So, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't plan it that way. It's just the, the title is based on a column that I wrote for WWE.com that got me some infamy about 20 years ago and kind of stuck with me. But, um, yeah, I just started, I've got two, as, as we're recording this, I have two episodes that are out one with Stu Sacks of pro wrestling illustrated and the other with the blue meanie. And I've got a bunch more in, in the can. So basically it's a pretty simple premise. It was just, my idea was just to do conversations about old school wrestling. And my informal definition of old school is let's say anything older than 20 years. I'm okay with talking about on there. And it's just meant to be casual conversations, which is why I've been trying to confine it so far to people that I have a relationship with and I know and I'm comfortable with. So I don't have to kind of go in there cold and we could just sort of kind of shoot the breeze. So it's been going well and getting a good response. And I'm, I'm thankful to Brian last for, you know, putting it on there. I was, I was planning to just try to give it a go and do it independently on my own and see what happens. And, you know, because I had been on the 605 in September and I thought, well, maybe I'll try to build off this. And he, when he heard I was doing it, he reached out to me and was like, Hey, what, what you should do it on Arcadian Vanguard. And I was like, I wouldn't even have presumed, you know, so thank you for the invitation.
0: I I, I was in the same boat. I'm like, I'm getting a, a an invitation to be on the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. This is insane. Blue Meaty, maybe 25 years ago, writes to me, he's like, can I get a bunch of Bret Hart stuff from you? And my response to wrestlers was always, you know, yeah, and you know. I don't want your money, but what I'd I'd really like is an autographed picture saying, John, thank you for the tapes, you know? So I send him a bunch of Bret Hart tapes, and I don't get the pictures right away. And I was kind of used to that. You know, sometimes you got them, sometimes you didn't. And I would say like four or five months later, Blue Meanie sends me this stack of Blue Meanie (laughs) pictures, like about 10 different ones, more than one of each, all signed, and
1: he was like, yeah, I was just waiting for my new pictures to come in.
0: I was like, dude, thank you.
1: He's the nicest guy. He really is. I, I got to know him when he was at WWE. We, I, I didn't know him all the way back in the ECW days. But I mean, like every, you know, we've been trying to connect for so long. I, I was telling him, my sister goes, I'm sorry, my daughter goes to college in Philadelphia. And so I'm there now and then. And so, you know, we've been trying to connect, but it never quite works out. And so, uh, I'm, I'm glad that he agreed to do that. It was just, uh, he was really laid back and totally comfortable. And he liked the fact that, you know, I didn't want to really talk about ECW because that, because I feel like that's what everybody talks to him about. He's probably done a million interviews about it. I said, I want to talk about your fandom. I want to talk about like you growing up. I know you were a fan. I've seen those pictures of you with like the Hart foundation and Randy Savage and with your acid-washed vest and everything. Let's talk about, you know, when you were a kid, what did you like to see? You know, so I, I tried to make it different, you know?
0: That's what I try to do. I've got someone hopefully lined up coming on soon that's actually really well-known. Uh, it's It's still in the maybe process, but, like, that's how I hit that person up with, you know, look, we're not going to talk about the usual stuff. I want to talk about something different. But anyway... Stu Sachs, this this might make you laugh. To me, he is still or was still one of the new guys in the Pro Wrestling Illustrated slash Bill After Magazine factory because I started buying those magazines in 1976, and then he came on in 79, so he was permanently
1: branded into my head as the new guy, even Mm -hmm. though he's been there for 40-something years. Right, and I think he—oh, man— He didn't become the editor in chief until I want to say late '80s. So he was maybe there like ten years by the time that happened.
0: That sounds about right. And you know, let's let's be honest: ten years is a long time. You know, especially when you're working somewhere.
1: I'm just so jealous because I think about it, and unfortunately, it's not the way that PWI is today. Uh, But in those days. It was a place where it was like a workplace, you know, and I, I, I'm just jealous of the idea that, you. I mean, I kind of did it with WWE magazine, but it's not the same because you're, you know, you're part of this giant corporate entity, but I I thought it would be so much fun to just your job, your full-time nine to five, or as Stu said, like 10 to four job, five days a week is making wrestling magazines. I mean, with a bunch of people, you know, the way it is today, it's, it's really just one guy. It's in the office full time. It's Kevin McIlvaney, who's the editor in chief now, and he's the only one there and everyone else is freelance or, you know, submitting stuff from home and just their, their payroll is down to nil. And it's just not the way it was in the old days. And and I, I would have loved to have been there then.
0: I mean, the, the, uh, my mind was blown when Stu said that they would play (laughs) Stratomatic baseball in that office. I mean, you've already got a dream job, and now you're playing Stratomatic with Bill after, and I have so many questions about, like, how that whole thing went. It's phenomenal.
1: (laughs) But, you know, I want to say really quick, and not to totally hijack, but since you you mentioned Blue Meaning buying tapes from you and things like that, I just want to say – And you've probably covered this ground before, but I have to briefly put you over on here. So I really want to do this. But for people that are too young to remember, or if you just weren't a wrestling fan at the time, there was a time long, long ago, before the Peacock and WWE Network, before the internet even, before anything, where we wrestling fans were desperate to see the stuff that we couldn't see or the stuff that we missed. And the name John McAdam, I'm just going to say for fans that were into that kind of stuff was a legendary name because that was the guy that you could get this stuff from. And I remember when finding you online, basically in the early days of the internet and just, you know, a, a just real old school, like mid nineties wrestling website, right? And just being blown away. And and it, it meant something, because I think nowadays you take it for granted. You could see almost anything you want at a at a touch of a button. But in those days it was mind blowing to be able to say, holy I don't know if I could say that word on this show, but holy cow. Like I, I, I think I want to see like some Memphis wrestling from nineteen eighty five. And I think I'm just gonna like pay some money and some tapes will be delivered to my house. Like that that was uh, a very big deal at the time So so thank you, John, for playing that role In the lives of so many fans back then it re- you, you have done us a service
0: Well, uh, thank you for putting me over And if ever you want to have me on your show To discuss the subject I would be happy to accommodate you That would be great, yeah We should do that All right, because I, recently I've had a couple of conversations on Twitter That have kind of... Uh, shaken my, jogged my memory, there's the word I'm looking for, kind of getting out of it in like 88 and 89 and how I jumped back into it in 1990. And, you know, when the website first started, I mean, and I didn't care. I was like, you know, okay, usually if I'm out with a wrestlers or whoever, you know, I, I'm cool about not, you know, asking them to give me too much information or acting like I'm all of a sudden their best friends, so they need to tell me everything. And when I put the website out in 95 or 96, I mean, I just like spilled everything. Okay, here was the real story behind that. It's just, you know, no kayfabe whatsoever. And I mean, but at that point, no one was kayfabing on uh, anymore. It was, you know, that was gone because now we have the ability to communicate with each other. And I think that, you know, if we had that in the 80s, it would have had the same effect.
1: Right. And what was happening around that time, um, and I know I'm a little bit younger than you, but I mean, from my experience, by the time the internet got started, let's say those early years, like mid to even late 90s, it was an explosion of information. The difference was, you know, we always knew, I mean, I I speak for myself, but a lot of fans always knew that wrestling to some degree or another was a work, you know, we understood that we weren't watching the Olympics. You know what I mean? We got it, but we didn't fully, or at least I didn't, people didn't really get the nuts and bolts of what was happening. We wondered, we speculated, we debated, we didn't know how it was done. We didn't know the the whole backstage kind of element. We may have heard rumors here and there on hotlines and late night radio shows and things. But what happened with the internet was it was a confirmation of what we knew. And it really broke down the details. And that's when I really felt like I learned so much, you know, I was in my maybe early to mid twenties and I really start, that's when I really got, it was before I went to WWE and I really started getting exposed to, you know, the lingo and the, and the terminology and things that it was really kind of putting a fine point on what I already knew, you know, from when I was a kid.
0: Miller light in 1989, put out a survey. They surveyed exactly a thousand sports fans and they asked a bunch of questions. And one of the questions they asked was, do you think pro wrestling is real? Brian, out of the thousand responses they got, what do you think the result was? Like, just give me a
1: guess. I think it's probably higher than, somebody would would think and that i would think but i'm gonna say oh maybe like how many thought it was how much thought it was real maybe like a third a brian quarter? the
0: the the answer actually it couldn't possibly be higher out of a thousand fans surveyed a thousand fans said it was fake oh wow <laughs> wow and i mean i got i got that that information live from dave melzer so i i do believe it One thing I always knew about wrestling, like someone asked me, I don't know, mid 80s, like how do they decide who wins? Do they flip a coin? Do they arm wrestle? What happens? And I'm like, it's like the Rocky movies. It's like you build up to have that big match and, you know, Rocky beats this guy. Clubber Lang beats that guy. Rocky
1: beats a bunch of guys. Clubber Lang's mean to Rocky's wife. And there you go. Well, it's funny you mentioned the Rocky movies and Stallone because he got wrestling. I mean, he he was a wrestling fan. He understood the psychology of booking wrestling and you could see the fingerprints all over the Rocky movies. I mean, especially the later ones, you know, it's like, it's booked like wrestling. He was, he was very smart about that, but you know, it's funny. Like you were saying how the, you know, a hundred percent of the people that, that Miller light polled said that they were sure wrestling's fake. The question I have is, I don't know if you'd get that same number because that's general population, right? I don't know if you'd get that same number. If you polled actual wrestling fans at the time, I think the feeling I used to get from going to shows and from being around fans was that it was, there was definitely a significant minority of fans who thought that they were watching something real, even in the eighties. I agree with
0: you. And when my friends and I went to go see wrestling, we had a rule. And it was turn off your brain and pretend it's real because there's mm-hmm. no other way to enjoy it. And you know what? That turned out to be wrong. There, there is another way to enjoy it. And you know, there, there's nothing wrong with that,
1: in my opinion. I loved being able to um, play along with it and and suspend my disbelief. I, uh, for me, it was always like um, getting caught up in a movie or a TV show. It was. Uh, I, I liked to play along even though in the back of my head, you know, I, I knew the score. But then there there comes a time, especially, you know, even even the, the after magazines themselves had to concede. You know, once the Internet came in, they couldn't keep doing that because it just came off as just silly and just unsustainable. And it started coming off as insulting the readership, you know, so they had to kind of go with the flow. But like you said, there's another way to enjoy it. But but I think that what's interesting now is we're seeing and tell me if you have ever have found this to be true. Now, we've had the Internet for what? Uh, I don't know. Twenty. Could we say like maybe twenty five years, a little more than that? And in turn and even in terms of wrestling, I feel like there's a difference today among wrestling fans online than there was when the Internet was first getting started. I feel, because a lot of these younger fans today on the internet, they weren't even around then, or they may have been babies, you know. I feel like when the internet first hit and was smartening fans up, I feel like it was a much smarter fan base than what you have now. I I think now, because it's been around so long, I actually think there's been kind of almost like a reversion in a way, where you have a lot of young fans who, even though they don't realize it, but they're almost acting as if they do believe it's real in a weird, strange way. And they're even doing that online on social media. And I find that they're less smart than the Internet fans of, say, 20, 25 years ago. I agree with that. And, you know, there is a value in just, you know, suspending your disbelief.
0: And that would go for any form of entertainment, in my opinion. You know, one thing about the after magazines and I mean, I'm I'm sure you know this. I mean, I grew up on those, okay? I mean, they were such an important part of my childhood, but even I could occasionally roll my eyes. Like, sometimes they couldn't just let things go. I'll give you two examples. Eddie Mansfield appears on 2020, and, and Jim Wilson as well, and they exposed the business. The only thing they really exposed to me was blading, and I kind of suspected that. But like they instead of just not saying anything, they make up a weird story about how Eddie Mansfield, you know, who would do that? Who would cut themselves? And Eddie Mansfield's just, you know, bitter. And I've never heard of Jim Wilson. And another time when the Sheik and Duggan got arrested together, driving together down the New Jersey Turnpike, talk about exposing the business. And again, instead of just ignoring it, they make up some crazy story about, you know, Duggan wanted to give Sheik a ride because otherwise he wouldn't appear at the arena and Duggan wanted to have the match. So we drove
1: him. And I was like, oh God, guys. <laughs> I didn't even know that they addressed that stuff. I didn't get my hands on those magazines until probably the early 90s. I, I didn't even get to them in the 80s. I was a little young and really the only magazine that I bought when I was that young was WWF Magazine where you weren't going to find anything like that in there. But I'm surprised that they would even bother addressing that it's just it's it's really unnecessary like you said they could have just ignored it but i I do remember as a kid i think i was in maybe fifth or sixth grade when that iron chic and hacksaw jim duggan thing happened that was a very big thing for little kids let me tell you I, i don't know unless you were a kid then you may not understand it like it was legit i mean every boy my age was watching wrestling and in school, we were talking about that. I mean, it crushed us. I mean, there was a, it did a lot of damage, a lot. And, and and there were a lot of kids that stopped watching because of that. And I know that's anecdotal. That's my own, you know, memory of it, but I saw it happen. I, wow. That really surprises me. I yeah. mean, I'm talking about 10, 11 year old boys. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about grown, grown men. No, I am talking about kids whose hearts were broken. <laughs> They couldn't believe it's like I said, it's like, you kind of knew some of this is phony or whatever you want to call it, but having it pushed in your face like that, you know, hacksaw Jim Duggan, the American hero, and he's in a car, not only in a car, he's getting high, you know, with the iron Sheik, the guy that he's supposed to hate. And it really messed us up. <laughs> I, I can see that now I can totally see it because. The getting high with the Iron Sheik part, yes. that's the key. That made it 10 times worse. It, it really did, because it's like, I don't know, you know, we're little kids, you know, we're and this is the height of Just Say No and Nancy Reagan, and we're thinking, you know, drugs are bad, okay? And and the idea that these are human beings, I mean, especially the Iron Sheik, I mean, he was, and now, of course, I laugh thinking of it, but as a 10-year-old boy, you're thinking the Iron Sheik is, is taking drugs? Like, what? And, of course, now <laughs> the, the idea of being shocked by that, you know, but I was 10 years old, so
0: No, I, I, I totally get it. I had no idea at some point that any wrestlers used any kind of drugs. I, I <laughs> couldn't believe it when Gino Hernandez died of a cocaine overdose. Like,
1: he's a professional athlete. He he can't do cocaine. I mean, right. I'm in my 20s saying this. Now, I. um. I was a Mets fan as a kid in the mid eighties, so sadly, I was very much exposed to the idea of professional athletes doing cocaine because I think that uh I think that the <laughs> I think the baselines at Shea Stadium in the mid-80s were just cocaine. Oh man.
0: <laughs> I was a big Mets fan as a kid growing up in Jackson Heights. It was a, a tough transition. I believe I would still be a Mets fan if we had the technology that we have today with, like, season ticket, you know, to get the games. If if they had that available in the early 80s, late 70s, I'd still be a Mets fan. I was at the game where the ball went between Buckner's legs. I'm not joking.
1: Wow. That's great. I was watching it at home with my dad, and I remember it was very late because I think I was in, like, maybe seventh grade. or Yeah, I would be in sixth or seventh grade. And now I was getting tired. You know, it was late. So I went to bed, but I had a TV in my room. I had the TV on, and I'm nodding off in bed, and I literally woke up just as that happened. I couldn't believe it, and it was like you would think, and I think a lot of people look back on that, and they mistakenly think that the Mets won the World Series in that game. They didn't. There was still another game after that. That is correct. But you would have thought that they won the whole World Series. I mean, there were people honking horns. There were people out in the street And they hadn't even won the whole World Series yet. But it was just, they were so out of it. It was so completely over. And to have that happen, I mean, it was like a movie, you know?
0: I, too, watched it on television. And you're saying, wait a minute, you said you were at the game. Yeah, the guy I was with, uh, (laughs) one of the guys I was with who was driving, was like, we got to get out of here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've got Massachusetts plates. I'm going to burn my car. I'm like, dude, you're not in the Bronx. This is flushing. You're (laughs) fine. But. He was driving, and we stopped, and these people were outside. It was an unbelievably cold night, watching it on an old black-and-white TV, and that's where I saw it. And my friend was a little bit older than me, and he's like, I thought I was going to see a 21-year-old have a heart attack, literally.
1: <laughs> right. There's, um, if you ever saw the, um, the baseball documentary, the Ken Burns baseball documentary, There's a bit in there where they have Doris Kearns Goodwin, the the historian, right? Who's like this huge Red Sox fanatic. And she was talking about how she's watching the game with her kids and that happened. And she was so emotionally wrecked and her kids are trying to console her and they're going, mom, mom, you know, look, they're going to try again next year. And she's thinking in her head, like you poor children, you don't understand It's been 70 years, right? I'm not counting on this ever happening again. I I can't count on us ever getting this close again, you know? No, I mean, just getting to the World Series.
0: I mean, it's been 11 years since the Red Sox have been to the World Series. Brian, let me ask you a question. You worked for the WWF, but their magazine division. You said you launched the SmackDown magazine. Yeah. I mean... I am so curious. How did you get your foot in the door? I mean, that seems like just a giant wall to climb
1: and you climbed it, man. Yeah. It's, you know, it's crazy. It was, it was not, I I mean, it was pretty weird how it happened because it was the most pedestrian kind of thing. I I had just gotten married. I was working at at a a job writing, you know, kind of like reference book publishers. It was, not the best paying job. And I'm looking for something a little better. And my wife points out to me, she goes, and this is in the days of the New York times classified section on paper, you know? Oh yeah. And she's like, look at this. And they literally had the WWF logo, the scratch logo in the New York times classified column, just advertising that they needed a copy editor. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, what the hell, you know, I'll give it a shot. I applied and out of all the jobs, I mean, I was applying to tons of jobs and they got back to me. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget getting that call. Like I can't even put it into words. Cause here I am, I'm, I'm at that time I was 25 about, and I had been a wrestling fan since I for more than half my life. And, um, it was, it was surreal. Like I went to a series of interviews they put me through. Cause what I learned later was they were looking for a copy editor for not for the magazines, but for the creative services department, which is the department that does things like they, they design stuff, you know, like they design merchandise, they design the ring skirts, they design the banners, they have graphic designers there. And so I applied to that. And what I discovered later was I actually didn't get it. There was someone who got picked ahead of me, but then they discovered they needed a second copy editor. And it was only for that reason that they called me back. And I I remember doing the interview and being very self-conscious because I had heard, as a lot of people have heard, that they don't like people that are big fans, right? I have heard that. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and I'm downplaying it so much to the point where I felt like I blew the interview. And I actually called them at the, I called the HR department and I said, you know, I think I messed up that interview. I'd like to come in and do it again and show you what I know and what I could do. And they brought me in. It was my third interview. And I, I balanced it. I basically said to them, look, I'm going to be straight with you. I've been a fan since I was a kid. I, I have a very strong knowledge of this product. You know, I've been following it a long time. The entire industry i have been following it since I was a little kid. I am not going to be running around the halls, trying to hit people with a steel chair or, or making signs ah. and being a complete mark. I need you to understand that I'm a professional I've already been a professional writer for a couple of years. I have a master's degree. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can, I can bridge both of those worlds. And I think they liked that. And I started out, my foot in the door was, I was a copy editor, which is essentially a proofreader, right, with a fancy title. And I was doing it in the magazines and for creative services. And the bluff was, and if my old boss, Barry Werner's listening now, I'm sorry. The bluff was I had never been a copy editor before in my life. I knew oh. nothing I knew nothing about proofreading or copy editing. The only thing I knew about it was that as a writer, my work had been proofread by other people, so I was able to see what they were doing. So uh, here I am faking it for about nine months, and they discover, my bosses were like, this guy knows a lot about wrestling. He knows his stuff. And he's a writer. Why don't we make him a staff writer? They had a writer who was leaving. And by late 2000, uh, you know, I was there a little less than a year. They made me a staff writer. And just from there, thankfully, back then, I don't know how it is now, but they in that department, look, we had a really good department head at that time. His name was Barry Werner. He had been the sports editor for the New York Daily News. And he was a great boss because he believed in cultivating people from within, which a lot of the people there don't believe in. And so he really built me up. I went from in very quick order, like from year to year, I went from staff writer to senior staff writer. Then they had then the managing editor of Raw and WWF magazine left the company. So they basically split the position. They gave they made me the managing editor of WWF magazine. And another guy I worked with, Aaron Williams, became managing editor of Raw. And here I am. I'm like, by the end of 2003, I'm the managing editor, which was essentially the person running the day-to-day operations of the magazine. I'm the managing editor of a magazine I was reading when I was 12 years old. That, is, that is fantastic.
0: I mean, that really, I, I think, I wish I had been around to advise you at that point, because I would have said, you know, hey, I am a big fan of this product. I think I know a lot about it. But at the end of the day, to me, this is a job and I am going to, you know,
1: and I'm right. going to be a professional. Right. I, and I think that's what they were looking for, because I can only imagine the stuff that they had to go through in some of these interviews. I'm oh, not yeah. I'm not defending them and their kind of snobbery against wrestling fans. But but I can see how, as an H.R. director, if you've been through enough of interviews with people who have zero qualifications, you know, but are just huge wrestling fans, it's probably enough to drive you nuts. So I, I could understand that a little bit.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you hear stories like uh, the Ramones were trying to find a bassist and guys would show up for the audition like, wow, I can't believe you're I'm meeting you guys and they don't know how to play the bass. So I'm right. sure that happens everywhere.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, you know, by the time I got to be managing editor, I mean, they knew – that I knew what I was doing, you know, and and, and they knew that I had a, a, a knowledge of wrestling and of their business and that I also was a decent writer and editor, you know. It's just but the Smackdown magazine thing started I was a little bummed out about it because I took over WWE well, I think it was it was already WWE magazine at the end of 2003 and there were literally two issues left before they switched it over to SmackDown. And and I I was kind of pissed off because I was like, I finally got, I'm running WWE Magazine, which has been around for, you know, at that point, 18 years, 19 years, and now you're telling me it's going away? Like, what did I, did I jinx this magazine? You know, I I was a little annoyed by that. I've always wondered, now, I I look back at the
0: old after magazines from the 70s and 80s and it definitely looks like the magazines were constructed based on the photographs that they had available to them. Like if they had a, a good picture of Bruno Sammartino, they would make up a, a crazy article about Bruno, for example, if they got a uh, good pictures from mid South wrestling, you might hear something about, you know, the Ted DiBiase versus junkyard dog feud. I know this is kind of a complicated question and, you know, I'm, I'm sure. You could take a long time answering it, but like, what were the nuts and bolts
1: coming in? Like, you're
0: just creating a magazine from scratch. Like, how did that go?
1: I can only talk about, you know, the, the years that I was there. So just to be clear, I was there from 2000 to 2007. So, you know, it was right after Vince Russo had left. In fact, that was partly why I was hired because they were kind of restructuring and bringing in new people because he had taken some people with him. And, uh, so I was there from that period for about seven years after that. And, you know, there were two different approaches. If we're doing, let's say in the beginning, if we're doing WWE magazine, right, that's a totally kayfabed magazine, which by the way, I, I almost wish that there was a, a kayfabe wrestling magazine again. I think it would be fun to do, but no, anyway, no one will ever fund it. So anyway, if we're doing WWE magazine, we're thinking from a storyline point of view we're sort of taking our marching orders to a certain degree from television. So, you know, we we typically would have these brainstorming meetings where we'd have the entire roster, you know, laid out on a chart or whatever or a paper, and we'd be deciding, you know, the stories were all character driven in WWE magazine. It was driven by names. Like, who do we want to cover? Who needs a story? Who hasn't had coverage in a long time? We had to be very careful because We were, you know, about six weeks out, sometimes more than that. So you couldn't get too specific about storylines and and sometimes even who was the champion. You had to be very ambiguous about because you never knew if they'd still have the belt by the time the magazine came out. You know, that got a little better when Shane McMahon was running our department a little bit later because he you know, he was more plugged in. So he could tell us, you know, oh, it's safe to refer to The Rock as you know, WWF champion, cause he'll still have it by the time this comes out, but we had to be very careful and we tried to have fun with it. You know, the stories in WWE magazine, it was almost like doing creative writing. We were trying to come up with fun scenarios and, and, and vignettes and things that were still somewhat tied in, uh, to what was happening on TV for raw magazine. We had a little more freedom and that was a magazine. I was very proud to be a part of because when it started, and this is not a knock, but The original vision of Raw magazine, when Vince Russo started it in 96, I think it was very it was like attitude before there was attitude. It was very it was built around sex and violence, which, you know, I have no problem with, but it was intended to be kind of a mature audience wrestling magazine. And what we did after he left was we kept it as something for mature readers, but we made it less sensationalized and less exploitative. We tried to make it more like a a human interest magazine, like, you know, real stories with the superstars about their lives, about their background, about their interests, stories about wrestling history, stories about we were, you know, we were allowed to mention other promotions and things. And we would do it in a way where we weren't completely breaking kayfabe. We wouldn't talk about you know, uh, planned outcomes and things like that and and knowing who was going to win. But we would allude to certain things. Like we would allude to how guys would change personas and how they would be repackaged and how their TV personas weren't the same as their as their real life personalities. We were allowed to sort of bend the kayfabe a little bit. And what wound up coming about, and this, if you look back at it, it's like the it's a period from about 2000 to 2004 or so that raw magazine is an amazing publication. I will put it up there with any wrestling magazine that's ever been done. It was very unique and very high quality. I thought
0: that is good to hear because I think everyone should be as proud as the quality of their work, as you just expressed. And with that, I'd like to step into a project that you, I think very recently completed and the book is going to be out in April. You did a biography on the original Sheik, Ed Farhat.
1: Yes, I did. It's called Blood and Fire, the Unbelievable Real-Life Story of Wrestling's Original Sheik. And yeah, it's out April 12th. Um, I, I can't believe it. It's I, I first pitched the book in June of 2019, and I started working on it in November of 2019. And I feel like... It took my life over. And it's been it's oh, of course been like two and a half years. If my wife never hears the word chic again, I think it'll be too soon at this point, but it's been a journey. It's incredible. And now what inspired you to pick the chic as your subject matter in the book? Well, there were a few things. So I I had been fascinated by Detroit wrestling for a long time because I felt like it was a territory that doesn't get talked about too much anymore. And at the time, and when it was hot, it was, you know, possibly the hottest territory in the country for a handful of years, you know? And I feel like, like it went away before the McMahon expansion. So it sort of got forgotten to a certain degree. And so I always had it in the back of my head. I wanted to do something about Detroit wrestling. And then The Sheik, of course, you know he was the, the nerve center of Detroit wrestling. And then when, when I did my last wrestling book, which was called Pro Wrestling FAQ, I wrote a profile of The Sheik in the book because I did profiles of all major stars of the past. And I just became really fascinated with his story. And what shocked me was that he really was and is the only name I could think of At his level of fame and notoriety and influence, especially from his era, that has never had a book written about him. I couldn't think of a single person that was bigger than the sheik that had never had a book done. And so I felt like, well, I got to fix this. (laughs) I have to be the one. I have to be the one to do it, you know? And and I mean, I, I understand why, because he was so incredibly secretive. And it was a lot of hard work because, I mean, there are no interviews out there. There's no shoot interviews with the sheik so it was hard
0: he could still be alive and i don't think i i think he he could have been frozen in time and i don't think we would see it a, a shoot interview from the sheik because some guys like him and from what i've heard you certainly know a thousand more a thousand times more about the sheik than i do but my understanding was he was
1: very old school very very anti-kayfabe Yes, he was, you mean very pro-K-Fabe, right? Pro-K-Fabe, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, he, yeah, almost to 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 an insane degree. I mean, he, even in his own time when K-Fabe was sacred, he took it to a, a level that nobody took it to. I mean, where he just, he just lived it. Like if you, you know, they said if you called his house and you asked for Ed Farhat, he would say that there was nobody there by that name you had to ask for the sheik. And then if you ask for the sheik, he would put his wife on the phone to talk to you, you know, because he's not gonna talk to you. And it it was crazy to me. But what was also interesting, though, was peeling back the layers, because you have to realize that a lot of that is also mystique. So when you get close to the real person, that's when you can start to say, okay, look, let's break this down. We're all rational human beings here. Like, we all realize that he wasn't home at night throwing fireballs at his wife and children. He wasn't chewing up the curtains in the living room. You know, he wasn't, when they were putting, you know, paperwork in his face, you know, he wasn't chewing it and swallowing it. Obviously at certain points, he had to be his real self. And when did that happen? and, And what were the, you know, what were the rules of that? Because I think there's a lot of people to this day who, are so bought into the mystique that they really don't fully grasp. Like we talked about not knowing where the kayfabe ends, right? They really don't know how much of it was a put on and how much, you know, what was the real person like? So I wanted to sort of break that down and really get into as close as I could to the real person. I mean, I have always
0: had a a fascination With some of the stories, like the wrestlers and the people around wrestling, the things they would do in order to maintain the highest order of kayfabe, Um, Scott Williams, who is no longer with us, did the Terry Funk book, and he did the Bill Watts book, and he's like, you know, I don't want to do another wrestling book, and I was like, Scott, well, if you ever do, I would recommend doing a book about all of the crazy stuff over-the-top stuff they did to maintain K Fabe, Like, um, after Junkyard Dog was blinded, allegedly, by the Freebirds, he drove to the office in Mid-South, and Bill Watts freaked out, and they put him in the trunk of Grizzly Smith's car, and they drove him home. And I remember JYD allegedly saying, oh, my God, this is not how I want to die. You know, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly hot in Louisiana, and they've got this, 300-pound man stuffed
1: in a trunk. And like I said, I've always been just, you know, mesmerized by stuff like that. It's just in their blood. You know, like you're talking about Terry Funk. I interviewed Terry for the book. This was two years ago. And he was so friendly and so helpful. And he gave me some great quotes and things. But the thing about it is I could tell that He was also being very protective. You know, he never fully pulled the curtain back. Like, you know, for example, the Sheik worked for the Amarillo territory going back to almost the earliest parts of his career. It was the first territory where the Sheik was used as a consistent main eventer. It was kind of like it was a very hot place for him, especially actually um, not Amarillo. What was the secondary town that they had? What am I? Lubbock, Lubbock. In Lubbock, Texas, he he was gangbusters business down there. And he was very close with Dory Funk Sr. So, you know, you can't tell me that Terry Funk, who at that point was still in West Texas State University and was practically a kid, you can't tell me that he never saw the human side of Ed Farhat. But, you know, he had to be around him all the time, even as a, as a very young man. And yet when he spoke to me, he spoke to me about somebody that, he was afraid for his life when he was around him. (laughs) Now, whether that's true or not, that's the way he put it out to me that he never knew what he was going to do that. You know, he was, he he was crazy and he was, you know, he, he was, he scared the shit out of him is the way he described it. Now, whether he did or not, you know, he was still very much about preserving the sheik's mystique, you know, and I would see that a lot when I talked to especially old timers. Like I remember, and for another book I did, WWE Legends, I was working at WWE at the time, and I got a sit-down interview with Arnold Scoland, who was oh, the, nice. Which it wasn't that hard because he used to just lurk around the backstage of Madison Square Garden smoking cigars and playing cards. So he wasn't that hard to get a hold of. But talking to him, I talked to him about Bruno San Martino and about his early days, you know, as a, a wrestler for the McMahon family and You could tell that there were times when he was trying very hard to maintain the facade, but he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, he knows that I'm probably somewhat smart, but he doesn't know to what degree. And there are times when I could almost feel like he's telling me things that are clearly kayfabe things, but he almost looked like he was embarrassed to say it because he could tell that I was too smart for that, but he still couldn't bring himself to be totally forthright so he was like he was talking to me about scouting opponents for Bruno and things like oh. that right and he's looking at me and he knows he knows that he had to know that i i i know he's working me and he's he has this sheepish look on his face like he almost as if to say look kid i'm sorry but this is the way i got to communicate with you so this is the way it is uh, and and that's the way a lot of those old timers were they just would not let it go for better or worse no, and, and that's the world they were
0: brought up in. Right. And, you know, that that's happened to me with wrestlers. And it's like, you know, I
1: understood it. It's like, you know, he's saying what he's got to say, and it, it's cool. That's it. Yeah, I mean, and, and part of it, too, was he knew he had to toe the company line. He really was a company man. And, um, you know, like I was talking to him about his early career, and the WWE version of wrestling history is that Jess McMahon, you know, Vince's grandfather, was basically, you know, at the same level of importance as Vince senior and Vince junior, which is really not true. You know, in the old days, in the, in the New York territory, back in those days, in like the forties and early fifties, and you know, Jess McMahon was a fairly minor player. He was a local promoter who got his talent from the booking offices of, of Rudy Dusick and, and Tut's Mond and people like that. And, and you can tell that when I was talking to Arnie Skull and he was, he was trying to toe the company line but he knew the real score and 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 he would tell me things like well you know confidentially rudy dusick was really the guy in charge of wrestling in new york you know jess was not really that big of a deal and you could feel like he's he feels like he's telling me something that he's not supposed to be telling me you know he kind of was to be yeah, honest yeah.
0: with you uh but yeah i'll tell you what you have two other books that are
1: available to be purchased now One of them is WWE Legends. Can you tell us about that book? Sure. That was my first one. And, you know, that one was actually produced through WWE and published by Simon & Schuster back when they had WWE had their publishing deal with Simon & Schuster. And I pitched it when I first started there as originally it was going to be a trading card set. And my idea was to do a set of profiles on the major stars of the company, except pre-national expansion, basically. Pre-WrestleMania, pre-Hulk Hogan. I wanted to cover the major stars of that era because I felt like they really were forgotten, especially by the company. And here you're talking about this is like 20 years ago when they really didn't do as much with history back then as they do as they do now. And they initially thought the idea had no merit at all. But a couple of years later, when they brought the Hall of Fame back and they were doing more nostalgia stuff, they actually decided to do it as a book, you know, and and, in those days too, I was, I was benefited by the fact that the the deal with Simon and Schuster was that WWE had to put out a new book every month, (laughs) every month. So they were kind of running out of ideas. (laughs) So they were like, let let Solomon do that legends thing. He wanted to do whatever the hell that was. It'll, it'll get us through next month, you know? So a it, book a month, what? a book a month. Yes, a book. But that is why you would get things like, you know, the book of road stories or the book of, you know, Jr. put out like three or four different cooking books because they they just had to have a book every month, you know. And the, I think William Regal got a book, and just like they would be so many, there was a glut of books at that time, but, but I'm glad because I got to do a dream project that that I never thought they would. Okay. And the whole time I was doing it, I kept thinking, somebody's going to take notice of this and they're going to cancel the whole thing. I could just feel it coming. They're going to be like, why the hell are we putting out a book about people who wrestled, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, who cares about those people? Like I was waiting for that. And it never happened. I I got it under the radar and I got it out and it's out there. WWE Legends. I'm I'm proud of that one too. Now you said
0: this is um, uh, you uniquely uh wrestlers before the expansion, so before mm-hmm. like January 1984, obviously the biggest name was Bruno San Martino, and if I have my dates correctly. This was during a time when Bruno was absolutely not cooperating with the WWF. If I'm correct there, like was Bruno in the book and how did you manage to
1: navigate that? Yeah, Bruno's in the book. He's in the book. And um, again, it was, I don't know, John, I wish I could tell you it was like a miracle. I don't know. (laughs) I just got this thing through. I don't flatter myself. I really just think it was because they didn't think it was very important and I wasn't very important. They knew it was, you know, it it wasn't like The Rock's book or Mick Foley's book or Stone Cold's book. It wasn't a book that they thought was going to sell huge amounts. They weren't paying that close attention to it. I I think that's really all it came down to, because I think if somebody was paying close attention, they would have gone through the book from cover to cover and dictated to me who I could and could not include. And none of that happened. Absolutely nothing like that happened. My only rule was this in order to keep it under control. My rule for who to include was because there's a lot of crossover and overlap. You had to be a a major star in the WWF territory already established as a major star pre-1984. So even if you went beyond 1984, like someone like Greg Valentine, let's say, or, you know, Sergeant Slaughter, if you were already fully established pre-1984 as a major star, you got in the book. And the other rule, especially if, if, your, if your most important years were pre-1984, you got in the book. So for that reason, like, for example, I did not include somebody like Tito Santana, because even though he was there before 84, really his most solid years as a single star were 84 and after. So I, I didn't put him in. The other rule was you had to have been mainly, primarily made a star from your time in the WWF territory. So that's a reason why I wouldn't have somebody like Dusty Rhodes in the book. Because even though he was a major star pre-84, WWF was not the main place where he had made his name. So I did that to sort of also keep it under control, you know, keep it under a certain amount of people to put in there. I mean, you mentioned Tito Santana.
0: I, I'll i bet, you know, there's a couple of people at least who are, getting, you know, oh no, Tito was a big deal. Look, I was at the Boston Garden when Tito Santana won the Intercontinental Championship. I know I've said this before, but my friends and I could not believe that, you know, the title had actually, we didn't believe the title had actually changed hands because number one, they didn't change hands in Boston. And number two, Tito Santana at that time was not that big a star, Like His job before he got to the WWF, he was a middle of the card guy in
1: Georgia. Right. And he had, you know, he had some success in tag teams and things in WWF, but that's what I mean. Like like his even though he had been he had worked for the McMahon's going back as far as I think even like seventy-nine or so, it was really that intercontinental run that was probably the highlight of his WWF career. And that was during the Hulkamania era, so that's why it disqualified him from being in the WWE Legends book. Otherwise, someone like him would have gotten in the book. But I think that that Boston Garden change with Savage and Santana. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I think that was kind of the end of other than the diesel thing. That was the end of house show title changes, basically. You know, I never thought of that before, but you're right. I mean, I
0: can't think of exactly except for diesel. Like all of
1: the title changes took place at either WrestleMania or one of the other pay-per-views. I hadn't thought of that. There'd be a handful like I remember in the 90s, they may have done one or two little tag title changes. And I think even within the past decade or they I think they actually did like a U.S. title change at the Garden. But I mean, what I mean is, I guess the the era of regularly changing titles at house shows pretty much ended with the Savage Santana thing yeah they did something with
0: money incorporated and this right. is when uh, yeah when they like switched the titles a bunch of times to tell you that hey if you go to a house show you might see a title change but really by that point i mean that i thought that was a futile effort it was now and is now primarily a television product and really there's nothing wrong with that
1: no there isn't but i used to suggest it all the time when i was working there because they would always be talking about how to get the house shows up and I would always say that, like, why don't you every now and then do a title change or even better than that every now and then even why don't you shoot an angle just once in a while? It doesn't even have to be a big main angle. Do something now and again just to give people the notion of, hey, you never know what could happen. Something might actually happen. And I think they, you know, I almost feel like house shows are inevitably headed towards death. But I think like that's something they could even do now if they wanted to boost it a little bit.
0: No, I, I agree. I mean, I you know what? I don't think the house shows are ever going to go away, at least, you know, permanently. They might turn into just on the weekends thing. But my understanding is, A, if you have few enough of them, then people will come out to see, you know, the big television stars in, in a, a smaller city. And
1: number two, my understanding is they move a ton of merchandise. Yeah. And but uh, I feel like they don't. Uh, the, for, I mean, one of the major benefits of the house shows too, is that it gives these guys a chance to work stuff out. I mean, it's like a, a proving ground, you know, you're working in front of live crowds and you can try out a match. You can try out a gimmick. You can, you know, it gives you a chance to do it other than just being in a bubble at, at the performance center. You know, it's valuable for that too. I think even though it's a tiny part of their revenue, I think that's a big part of the value, but I, I don't think they do a good enough job of educating fans on what the house shows are. Cause it's kind of taken for granted because in the old days, fans knew, like you went to the garden, that was the biggest show of the month or none fans don't have that concept now. So, you know, I've talked to people, a, I've talked to people who aren't even aware that WWE does shows that are not on television, you know, casual fans. And B, I've talked to people who were very casual fans who would go to a house show and be like, what the hell is going on? Where's the stage? How come there's no promos? Why is it just one match after another? What is this? Why is the lighting weird? It sounds crazy to us. But it's because if you think about it, there's no no messaging out there as to what these shows are. You know. About 30 years ago, me and some of my friends were hanging
0: out with Jim Cornette, sitting under the learning tree with Jim (laughs) Cornette. And Jim was talking about, like, why he felt WCW was not successful. And he was like, you know, if you were a big baseball fan and you had season tickets to go see baseball, you'd go see it all the time because it's a sport. But if you had tickets to the circus every day, would you go every day? No, you'd go once. and. I feel like I'm not calling pro wrestling modern pro wrestling a circus. I'm just comparing it to the circus in that it's not something you want to see every month, every week, whatever. And it turns out, you know, he was a prophet. I mean, the you know, for the last ten years, people just go to the shows because, you know, oh, I got to see, you know, I live in Topeka and I got to see John Cena alive. That
1: was cool. Right. And I don't think the circus comparison is is far off. Like I, I do think yeah, you know, And I don't mean the connotation of circus, meaning just like a nuthouse, right? <laughs> Although that sometimes applies too. But I do think that Vince's attitude towards the promotion of his product is very much in line with the circus, very much in line with the way. I mean, I remember interviewing him once even. It was for the WWE Legends book. I got to do an interview with him about his dad and things like that because his father is in the book. And he told me point blank that, His family was very good friends with the Feld family, which are the, that's the promotional family that handled Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. That's right. And and I think that they sort of saw themselves as kindred spirits. And I think that even, even pre Vince Jr. I think that even informed a lot of the Vince senior approach to wrestling, which is the, and and it certainly was cemented under Vince Jr. That this is a touring show and it's, it's going to be the same in every town. And you come out in your town to go see the spectacle of it. And then when they come back in a few months with a new set of attractions, like now we have the sword swallower and now, now we have the guy we're shooting out of a cannon. Oh, well, we have to go back and see it again. Like that was his approach. It it was not like you said, the approach of, I am a sports promoter. It was, it was very much, I am a promoter of spectacle.
0: I agree with that, and you know what? It,
1: I'll best compare
0: it to a concert. You know, if I had uh, who's my favorite performing artist? Let's say Elvis Costello. If I could go see him every night, I wouldn't do it. But like, you know, or, or would I watch him on TV every night? No. Even if he did different songs, I wouldn't do it. But you know, I'm I still watch all of the Patriots games. I still watch about 100 Red Sox games a year. Because it's a sport. And, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to be insulting by comparing it to a circus. It's like any other entertainment event. I encouraged everyone to join our Facebook group because we have some questions from our Facebook group that are about the wrestling magazine. Steve Campbell asks, what are some of the cover stories that stand out to you?
1: And any, do you have any, like, memorable cover stories from the magazines when you were growing up? Well, uh, I'll say, let me think. You mean, like, just could be from any wrestling magazine? Absolutely. Oh, boy. That that puts me on. I wish I had read these comments before. Let's see. Memorable wrestling cover stories. I think I remember. Well, I mean, I can tell you, like, for example, the first WWF magazine I bought, the first wrestling magazine I bought, period, was it had <laughs> the baby face. And I've heard you talk about the baby face Ken Patera on this show. But it had the baby, it was the, it was the WWF magazine with the baby face, Ken Patera with his natural hair color on the cover from 87. And I, I have to say, and I, I listened to the show you guys did recently where you talked about how his face push just didn't work in WWF. And I agree with that. But again, I'm 12 years old. I bought hook, line, and sinker into the redemption story of Ken Patera. <laughs> I'm telling you now. And the fact that he had paid his debt to society, as Vince kept saying on television, he had been to prison. He was a new man. Bobby Heenan was a piece of garbage for trying to drag him back down into the gutter and all this. I bought into it so completely, and I cherished that magazine. I still have it because it was the first wrestling magazine I ever bought. So I may be the only person that cared about the baby face, Ken Patera, but I did. I really did. That's, no, I mean, you know, I mean, he got a big push. He got
0: main events in the major arenas. Granted, they were tag team matches with Hogan, but I mean, and there was talk that he would turn on Hulk Hogan and be the opponent for WrestleMania four. And I was, and the whole time, like, I'm not going to tell you, I know everything, but I knew that that was a bad idea and it was never going to happen. My most memorable cover story, and I will post the picture on the Facebook group, is it is late 1986. It's like maybe two or three weeks before Christmas, and I go in and I buy my stack of wrestling magazines. I don't even really look at them. Inside Wrestling's here, boom, getting that. Sports Review Wrestling's here, boom, getting that. And I go up to the counter to pay for these. Now, Mind you, I'm 21 years old at this point. And the cover of Sports Review magazine has a picture of Kamala, who has a spear with him, and they have superimposed a
1: photo of Hulk Hogan's oh God, bloodied yes. head. Have you seen this? Yes. And I wish I had. I hadn't. I wish I had the chance to to really ask Stu about that when I had him on the show. I think he'd be too embarrassed to talk about it. That is an infamous cover. Yes, uh, it, infamous. I mean, embarrassed to create it. I was humiliated buying it. The woman behind the counter looks at it. She goes, "Ew!" I was like, "Oh, I'm getting too old for this." You know what? I have a good one too that just popped into my head. Because remember, I said I just, I first started reading the London magazines by about '91, and it was right around the time that Flair had come to the WWF. And he was, you know, supposed to be feuding with Hulk Hogan. And I actually got to see them wrestle at the Garden. And there was a cover of the Wrestler magazine. And it was a perfect example of what drew me to these magazines because they had an angle. They would sometimes promote these angles better than WWF was doing, at least for me, for my mind, because they were coming at it from a more historical perspective. It was a cover that had. Flair and Hogan kind of squaring off. I think Hogan was giving Flair a leg drop or something. And in the background, there was a silhouette of Roddy Piper. And the, the angle of the story was Roddy Piper giving his views on Hogan and Flair, having faced both of them, you know, throughout his career and his experience of, of being in the ring with them. And Something as simple as that, it gave the angle so much more depth than even what they were doing on television. That that's what I loved about those magazines, especially the the you know, the independent magazines like like the the PWI family of magazines, is that they would do stuff like that. And I remember eating it up, especially because, you know, I didn't grow up with Crockett, so I didn't really know a lot about Piper Wrestling Flair in the old days and you know, and, and, and even talking about Piper and Hogan, even though it had only been five or six years in the past, when you're 16, 17 years old, that's, that already feels like ancient history. And I thought it was really cool that they were drawing on all that stuff and bringing it all together in this story. It was, it was something that really turned me on to wrestling magazines. All right, detour, because if I'm doing my math correctly, you were about 15-ish when Ric Flair came to the
0: WWF in 91? I was, yes, I was 15. Yeah. Okay.
1: No, I'm sorry. No, I was 16. 16.
0: Okay, good. I've had people tell me that they were right around the same age as you. They were not fans of JCP. And when Ric Flair showed up in the WWF, the thought was, okay, who is this old guy with the blonde hair who's not very
1: big? What was your reaction as a fan when Ric Flair arrived? So, I had a different perspective because I grew up, even as a kid, I did not like Hogan. Now, I came to appreciate, as an adult, I appreciate his work and what he did and historically and everything. As a little kid watching, I was very annoyed because he never lost. You know, it was very predictable. Every match felt like it was the same, it was very limited. It, it didn't really get me going. And so, I would actually get fascinated by what I would hear about people like Flair. I I had heard of them, the horsemen, the, you know, the road warriors and things. I had heard those names, Lex Luger. I didn't know a lot about them. It was very exotic sounding. You know, I couldn't even really, I couldn't even see them on television because I didn't have cable. So I heard, you know, from kids at school who had cable or somebody that read in a wrestling magazine, it was like, you know, these urban legends of these wrestlers that were not in the WWF. And the story was they were better than the WWF guys. That was the way that I got it fed to me that, oh, these guys are legit down there. Like they're really doing it. Like these WWF guys are cartoons. And so by the time I'm 16, I'm a 16 year old boy and you have that attitude where you want to be edgy right and that's why you always get those fans that like to cheer for the heels and you want to be contrarian so so my attitude was oh this guy this guy is going to take hogan to school like that's the way i looked at it it was not like what you're describing i had friends that were like you're saying where they were very skeptical of flair but i was very excited to see flair come in because i had heard so much about him So much excited that I really did feel like as good as it was, it did not live up to my expectations. I was hoping for more. I was, I was hoping for that big money Hogan flair feud. I was hoping for flair to be able to get to do more than just be, you know, kind of the chicken shit heel and gorilla monsoon making fun of him on commentary. And, you know, he doesn't get to come out in the suit and the sunglasses and everything like, you know, they, they didn't quite. Stick the landing, but I was very excited to see him come in.
0: I was excited as well because Flair had been in the NWA for so long, and you know I wouldn't have run out of things for him to do, but they did. But anyway, Steve Generelli asked John Slash Brian, so Steve figured out who my guest was going to be this week. (laughs) I would love to know when the zenith of wrestling magazines was. Like, when did they sell the most? I have no
1: idea. Do you know this, Brian? I would have to say because it's a it's a favorite topic of mine, of course, because I was in wrestling magazines. I I've tried to learn so much about it, and I've talked to people in the industry. I've I've talked to Norm Keitzer and Lou Sahadi, and you know, and, and all the Apter and all those all the London magazine guys. And the impression I get is probably the hottest period for wrestling magazines would be <sighs> from the late sixties into the early seventies, that feels like from the conversations I've had with people where you would have like a dozen wrestling magazines on the newsstand every month, it was just this booming business where, you know, similar to how wrestlers were able to find so much work back then going from territory to territory. You had so many photographers working. They were able to go from territory to territory and place to place and sell their photos to so many different magazines, because it's like you said, in those days, the magazines were very photo driven. They were built around the photographs, but that's the feeling I get that era where it was like Bruno San Martino was a hot cover personality. The chic was a hot cover personality. That time period seems to be, and, and people may totally know better on this than me, but from everything I've been able to learn, that was when they were really selling the best. It's been over
0: 40 years, and today is the day I learned that the man's last name is pronounced Keitzer. I've been calling it Keitzer since the 70s. but anyway. well, I, well, you
1: know what? I was, too, but I talked to Les Thatcher, and Les Thatcher pronounced it Keitzer, and I, and Les Thatcher worked with him on magazines. So I'm thinking, Les has got to know how this man's name is pronounced. So I'm going to say Keitzer from now on because he did. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Finally, we have a, a question for Mark Matsuo.
0: John, have you met anyone from the magazines and what were they like? I want to get this in. I met Bill After and Craig Peters right before the New Jersey Meadowlands show on May 29th, 1984. And they were the two nicest people I have ever met in my life. We were at a restaurant. I see them come in. I'm like, wow, Bill After and Craig Peters. They come over. Hey, you guys want to have dinner together? I mean, we're two nineteen. You know, I was with another nineteen-year-old kid, and they just couldn't have been nicer. And I will never forget that. I will never stop being grateful for that. How about you, Brian? You've
1: met everyone, I bet. Well, yeah. I, well, Bill is amazing. He's fantastic. I love him. And every time, see, he's the same thing as the meanie. He's always trying to ask me to come in and, and visit when I'm in Philadelphia. And I'll never forget, I think he was kind of working me on purpose. The last time I was coming, I said, hey, Bill, I'm finally coming to Philly. And he goes, oh, I'm not going to be in town. Sorry. No, but but <laughs> but he's but he's a super nice guy. Craig, I've gotten to know on Facebook, from social media. And I just, I get the impression, like you're talking about meeting them. I just feel like those two guys must have been having the time of their lives doing that stuff back then. I mean... You want to talk about an adventure. I mean, that had to be an adventure that they were just getting to travel and, you know, meet people and, and and be at all these functions and taking pictures and being around these insane personalities. It just had to be incredible, you know? But yeah, I mean, those guys are great. And I'm trying to think of who, well, George Napolitano, I, I used to see him all the time because WWF and WWE were still, he was one of the only photographers they were still allowing to shoot their stuff. So, George is somebody that I got to know a little bit, too.
0: I did not know George. Uh, still got to photograph MSG when he had a competing magazine. That that surprises me, but it's a interesting piece of information. And, yeah, I, I, it, you know, the PWI guys, what an adventure. They get to take pictures, they get to meet the wrestlers, and they get to play Stratomatic baseball in the office. That <laughs> I'm still blown away by that. But, listen, I want to thank everyone who tuned in to listen this week. We are going to have a little bit of bonus content with Brian and I. It's a little bit wrestling related, but it's not a hundred percent. So if you're just here for the wrestling, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. But Brian has talked about an awkward phone conversation that he and I had at some
1: point. And Brian, I'd like to hear your end of this. Okay. So I mentioned this earlier in the show when I was putting you over, and it's very much true how you know so many people bought wrestling tapes from you 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 just or or traded with you or whatever the case may be and I was one of those people so I this must have been about when you first got that website going that you were talking about so I'm thinking like maybe like it was mid somewhere in the mid 90s and my obsession at that time I was absolutely obsessed with learning everything I could about the Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler feud Because again, you have to remember, there's no internet really. There's a very basic internet. There's certainly no YouTube. All I have is word of mouth. Comedy Central aired the show I'm from Hollywood, which for people that remember was like a pseudo documentary about Andy Kaufman in Memphis. And it was made, I think, even with his cooperation. Comedy Central aired it. And I was absolutely fascinated. It was one of those things where at that time. And I was not a kid anymore. I have to say, I have to admit, I was about 20, 21 years old and I'm still going like, was this real or what? Like, what was the deal? And I, I was still very, very markish. I have to admit in those days. And so what happened was I saw that you were selling a copy of I'm from Hollywood. And I jumped at the opportunity to buy a tape of yours. And it had, it had, I think it had, I'm from Hollywood and a bunch of other Memphis stuff on it. I think that's what it was. And I called you and I'm trying to remember why I called instead of just doing the whole thing through the web. I don't know if maybe that's the way that you did it or how you, how you were doing it at that time. Or I think maybe either I called you or you may have called me. To uh, It was to find out, you know, when they were being delivered or or when you expected to ship them, something like that. And I thought it would be really cool of me if I tried to make conversation with you, you know, and I think back on it now and I just cringe. And the reason I cringe is because now you're 10 years older than me. This is like the mid 90s. You are very thoroughly, I'm assuming, smartened up to the business way more than I certainly was at that time and i remember i'm going to you hey by the way man you know do you think uh do you think that stuff with with lawler and andy kaufman like was that real like did they really hate each other and like all the like did he really break his neck like what do you think like i'm trying to talk to you like one fan to another and i think back on it now and i'm like oh my god like what an embarrassing mark i must have seemed and i remember you being you, you're responding to me, and I could tell you're trying to be as nice as possible in your response, as, as non-condescending as you can be, talking about that feud. But I could tell that you are really holding back, and you had to be thinking to yourself, this guy is, is a total mark, and why is he asking me if Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman really hated each other? I I think about it now, and I still cringe thinking about that conversation. John, you Okay, I'm back. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Quick, brand new
0: mic. Sorry. I thought you were
1: getting your revenge on me for being such a mark and just hanging up. I do not
0: remember that conversation. You are not the guy that I thought you. (laughs) I, I thought you were completely someone else. I remember by the time my website was out. I was somewhat secretive about giving away my phone number. So you, you you must have just said, hey, John, can I give you a quick call? And I, I said, sure, here's my number. Um, I, I think that might have been it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was, I mean, you know, here's the thing, though. Andy Kaufman did a really good job hiding the fact that, you know, that it was a work. I mean, he did. We saw the movie, um, you know, uh, I remember seeing that at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And the cast of Taxi and Robin Williams, they're like, you know, they had no idea Andy was not smartening anyone up. I'm sure you saw the Letterman thing where Waller gets up and slaps Kaufman, right? Yes, of course. God, I played it over and over and over again. (laughs) And Andy goes on a profane tirade against Waller. And he threw everyone in his family off because they were like, you know, Andy never uses foul language. And mm. here he is getting slapped hard on national television by this guy and losing it. So, you know, in in part, like Andy really threw a, you know, threw
1: everyone off the, the track as far as he as he as he could. And he worked Letterman, too. I mean, I don't think that Letterman definitely didn't even know that was going to happen, at least from when you watch the Man on the Moon movie. It seems like the way they portray it there was it was a very tight circle. It was basically just Lawler and Kaufman and I don't know, maybe Jerry Jarrett, I guess, who knew what was really going on, which is crazy. My
0: understanding was Letterman did not know what was going to happen, and he was pretty furious at Andy because, yeah. you know, keeping him out of the circle.
1: And didn't, they, didn't he wind up getting, I don't know if this was a work or not, but didn't he wind up getting banned by NBC or something like that, where he, he was totally kicked off? He was on Saturday Night Live, too, and he did something really off-color on SNL, and it was sort of like, you know, the second strike against him or something like that. He went completely off script
0: on a show called Fridays, which was Larry David was on that show. Yes. And he just went completely off script on a live show and the producers were in on it. But Friday's was like a really bad SNL copycat thing. And then in 82, they did something where you could call a 900 number and vote on whether or not andy could ever be on saturday night live again and it it backfired they didn't think you know they were gonna the, the vote they were gonna vote him off but he got voted off saturday night live and i remember watching that episode and just you know cracking up andy's sitting there he's unshaven he looks like crap and he's like pleading you know my wife has left me, and, and she took the kids, and, and I, this is all I have left. And I'm the only one laughing. And everyone's like, you know, what's funny? I'm
1: like, he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids. Right. right. He was he was ahead of his time. Uh, people just didn't get it. They really just didn't get it. And, and I know, I, I think he got so caught up in it, though. I mean, there are stories that you hear about, like Jerry Jarrett said, he never cashed a check. Did you ever hear that story? I heard that story. He never cashed a single check and he was working the house show circuit, like these little podunk towns. And it's wild when you think about how he threw himself into it. I know I've even heard that the people that were close to him from taxi, like his showbiz friends, like, um, you know, Judd Hirsch and Tony Danza and people like that. They never liked when people would bring that up in interviews and ask them because, they would always say, I, "I really don't want to talk about that because I feel like it really destroyed my friend Andy. He got so sucked into that world that he sort of lost his mind a little bit. And it makes you wonder. Like, obviously, it's an angle that he was working, but it seemed to kind of really take over his mind to a certain bizarre degree.
0: Yeah, Andy was a weird cat uh, yes. to say the least. But I guessed wrong. I I thought. <laughs> I spoke with you, I spoke with you, and it, I, I had the wrong person. I'll I'll tell this story, and I'll wrap up Stick to Wrestling. Back in 1992, okay, I would get a call from someone, you know, from people. My phone number was out there. I was doing that to, you know, hopefully sell more tapes, quite frankly. And I had a big weekend ahead of me, right? I had a second date with a girl on a Friday. I had the NCAA uh, basketball tournament on Saturday. WrestleMania eight was Sunday and Monday was my fantasy baseball draft in a dynasty league and the final game of the NCAA tournament. Right. So Friday, I take this girl on our second date and by the end of the date, she's my girlfriend. I took her to see Wayne's world. You know what kind of effect that has on women, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, the, the, the same as Monty Python. It's just, yeah. <laughs> turns so, them on. Exactly. so, she says to me, well, I'm your girlfriend tomorrow, Saturday night. What are we doing? I'm like, uh, well, I have plans with my friends. We were going to uh, watch the basketball tournament. And, she, and I invited her. And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, love to meet your friends. And it's a Saturday night. We're hanging out, watching the game. And my phone rings and I pick it up. And it's someone wanting to talk about wrestling tapes. And I'm like, yeah, can you call me back this week? I've got people over. And this guy just completely bulldogged me like, you know, wouldn't peacefully get off the phone. And finally, I just say, look, dude, I got to go. I have people here. And he's like, well. I wanted to talk about a really expensive custom tape. I wanted to get from you. I'm like, call me this week. Thank you. Bye. And that was, and when I heard you Monday talking to Lou, you had mentioned something about a custom tape, and I was like, oh no, this is
1: going to be Brian's. It was nowhere near as bad as Boy, I thought
0: it was going to be.
1: I'm and, glad I'm not that guy. I'm, my story is way better. I'm glad I wasn't that guy. I'd, I'd be super embarrassed. I was just glad that you didn't condescend to me. You were, you were very kind on the phone and really never made me feel like i was an idiot even though i think back on the phone call now and i think i was an idiot but anyway uh
0: you know what i i think kaufman did just did a really good job as you know as we've all said just you know confusing everyone his own family was thinking okay this is real he just got hit for real on tv which he did and you know he went completely out of character and And you're right, you know, Andy, yeah, he just kind of
1: went into a pile of weird over that. I don't know. It ruined his career in a lot of ways, I have to say. I mean, if I separate myself from how great he was as a wrestling heel and how it was such a great angle, it kind of contributed to ruining his 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 regular showbiz career.
0: No, I remember reading. I mean, when Andy died, Andy was not he was not in a good place. I mean, a lot of people didn't like him. He had been off television for a while. He was offered uh, a tryout for a role in some new show. And he, you know, everyone knew who he was. He he thought he was going to walk in and get the role. And he got turned down. I mean, his, you know, people talk about, oh, if Andy had lived, if Andy had lived, he might be another Andrew Dice
1: Clay. Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, sometimes it's like it's like what they say when 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 we lose people like like Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin you don't get to see them. You you always remember them at the peak of their powers. You know, you don't get to see what happens later on when they turn into Ted Nugent or something, you know,
0: (laughs) that's a, that's a good one. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this week with stick to wrestling. Brian, thank you for coming on. I knew I was going to have more questions than time, but I can't wait to have you back.
1: My pleasure. This is just as great as I thought it would be. I, this is a great conversation. I, I love getting, Northeast Gen X wrestling guys together. Me, you, Brian Last. It's a great combo. I love it.
0: Well, you guys are way (laughs) younger than me, but thank you. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Luke Kippelman for all of the great work that he does. And I want to thank Arcadian Vanguard and Brian Last for giving me this podium every week. And we'll see you guys next week. Once again, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.